When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and every week I bring you two brand-new original episodes on military history. We love having our ever-growing family as part of this podcast, so please keep on sending us in your emails on the email address, which is warfare at historyhit.com. Get in touch, send us your ideas for episodes, send us your military histories. You can also follow us on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 and on Instagram at James Rogers History. Now, this episode takes us back to 1868 and evokes the spirit and danger of the early American West. It's the story of the Battle of Beecher Island, as told by author and historian Terry Mort. It's a story of outnumbered US Army patrolmen who were pitted against 600 native warriors. As Terry explains, the heroism displayed on both sides of the conflict captures the vital themes at play on the American frontier. So here is Terry on the Battle of Beecher Island. Hi, Terry. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. No, not a problem at all. How's your summer going? Just fine. Thank you. Uh, We're in the rainy season down here in Arizona, and that is a good thing. We need it. The grass is greening up and uh, everything is beautiful. Looks like Ireland here. Oh, very nice. A welcome respite from a, a hot summer. Yes, indeed. We're here today to talk about a very specific part of American history, about its more internal domestic wars as opposed to its foreign interventions that we usually focus on. But I've got a query to start us off, because like I say, we're here specifically to talk about the war on the American plains, or perhaps it's called the American frontier wars. But this is my question. What is the right way to label these American wars against Native Americans? Because it's stretched over such a long period. I suppose since the moment the English colonists arrived in Jamestown in 1607 through to the 1920s. So is there an overarching term that is useful that we should focus on? Or should we have more specific terms for the specific periods? I think generalizations are usually not very helpful. Same thing with terms. And you're quite right, the struggle, if you want to call it that, for the settlement of the American continent, and the U.S. specifically, went on for a number of 
decades, centuries. And so there's no easy way to label it. And it's not a good idea to do it. The popular word in our culture these days is diversity. And it applies in this particular case to all the people involved. There were so many tribes, they were so diverse, they spoke so many languages, they lived in so many different places. The settlers who were moving west had so many different motives for doing so. So to generalize about it is not helpful. So is that a broad way of saying that there isn't a specific term or is there one that we should perhaps latch onto? Well, before it became politically incorrect to use, it was basically called the Indian Wars or the settlement of the frontier. Those two things were the broad general categories of that because the settlers who landed on the East Coast gradually moved west. When they moved west, they encountered a number of different indigenous people and they had problems with some of them, no problems with others. And the the migration from east to west took a couple of centuries actually. And so it's too big a topic to give it a simple name. It's one of the problems we have in understanding history these days, I think, is the use of generalizations, the use of broad terms to represent uh, rather complicated ideas and events. So that idea. I think it's a really good point you make, because as I was going through the history of this, preparing for this interview, because I know so little about it, really. And in my schooling, we definitely weren't taught about it. And it's not an area of history that I focus on. I focus on the Second World War through to, well, 21st century modern warfare. So I was fascinated learning about it, but I couldn't conceptually place it into one specific period. So it's good you share those concerns with me. Today, we're talking specifically about a battle that was in the 19th century, before Wounded Knee or Little Bighorn, and it's one that General George Custer called the greatest battle on the plains. And this is the 1868 fight for Beecher Island, Colorado. Where should we start with this story, Terry? Well, I'm not surprised that Custer would say such a thing. It wasn't true, but Custer was given a little bit of overstatement now and then. I think that there are two reasons to look at this battle, because it wasn't that big a deal in terms of numbers engaged, although the the Cheyenne Indians, there were quite a few hundred of them, but the numbers engaged were not that great. The casualties were not that enormous, certainly not compared to a number of other battles in the West. So uh, the question is, why even bother with it? In fact, a lot of people are not even aware of it. That's a function of the size of the battle and also um, indifference to American history that's endemic in our culture, I'm afraid. But anyway, the battles, it occurred in 1868 in, in September. And the date is important because it's only three years after the end of the Civil War, our Civil War. And that was, as I'm sure people interested in history know, was an enormous bloodletting. There were modern estimates, most recent estimates say that there were something like 750,000 killed in that war. Originally, the number was something like 620 or something, but people keep trying to figure it out. It's very hard to estimate. But in any way, the point of view, it was a, a slaughter. It was fought largely by volunteer troops who were raised by the individual states. Oftentimes, the state governors would be appointed regimental commanders or even division commanders. And so 
that's an important point because the regular standing army in the United States before the Civil War was, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's about 18,000. So ultimately in the Civil War, there were something like 2 million troops on the Union side and 900,000 Confederate side. These guys are all volunteers. When the war was over, everyone, of course, was sick of the war. It was a tragedy in the way it was fought. And so these volunteers went home. And not only did they go home, the government, federal government, and many of the politicians in the U.S. had a longstanding tradition, I'll say, of disapproval of a standing army. They thought it was a kind of a European sort of idea. And uh, we were not all that interested in that sort of thing. So you had a a political tradition of anti-army. You had a very small army to begin with. You had volunteers who obviously wanted to go home and did go home. You also had a tremendous national debt that the federal government incurred in order to fight this war. At that time, a country that tolerated national debt As a side note, that debt was denominated in gold, and so gold mining and discovery became an important thing, as it always has been, but especially important after the war. So that meant that the Congress was looking for any way to save money. And one of the ways they decided to save money was to cut the army down. And in the, I think it was 1866 appropriations bill, they established an army of something like 50,000 men. And that was largely composed of infantry troops with a smaller contingent of cavalry and artillery. Now, a lot of the standing army at the time after the war was sent down south to fight the Ku Klux Klan. I think I ran across a statistic recently that in South Carolina alone, the army arrested 3,000 Klan members. So it was a problem. That meant that the army was stretched very thin. Then during the Civil War and prior to it and after it, Plains Indians, primarily the warlike tribes, the Cheyenne, the Sioux, the Arapaho in the northern sections and the Comanche, Kiowa and so forth uh, in the south, they had it pretty easy because the army was engaged during the Civil War. And uh, so they had a pretty free reign out on the plains to attack settlers, wagon trains, stagecoach lines, that sort of thing. They were also highly annoyed by local incidents such as the unconscionable massacre at uh, Sand Creek that was perpetrated by the Colorado volunteers against the Cheyenne. So they had a number of grievances, but they also had a number of opportunities that they were gleeful about taking. So you have a situation where you have an army composed of 50% recent immigrants because nobody else wanted the job. You had Congress that is penny-pinching. You had, therefore, an army that was composed two-thirds by infantry because infantry troops were cheaper than cavalry. They were cheaper to feed. They were cheaper to train. They were easier to recruit. So as the problems on the plains accelerated, and they did, primarily in the area of Kansas and Colorado and Wyoming, that whole general area, in other words, the Great Plains, 
the army had to do something about it because the settlers out there were raising hell and saying, come on, guys, we're being attacked out here. Meanwhile, the routes to the gold diggings in Colorado and Montana were being interrupted. And as I mentioned before, gold was a big deal because of the national debt. It's a big deal anyway, but it was a bigger deal because we were trying to pay down the national debt. So the commander of the area in that of Kansas and Colorado was General Phil Sheridan. And Sheridan was a major figure in the Civil War. He was a cavalry officer. He was a, a hero and he was legitimate hero in the Shenandoah campaign, a good soldier, and at that time a famous soldier. But he was under this burden of manpower shortage. So he was getting heat from all sides, from the Western editorialists and settlers who said, come on, do something about these guys. They're attacking uh, stage lines and ranches and isolated ranches and immigrant trains. So he said, well, if I don't have the troops to use, they're scattered all over the West. I mean, one of the soldiers, quite a good writer named uh, Barnett's, said, we have only a tenth of the troops that we need to do the job that we've been given. So Sheridan said, well, all right, I'll go into the quartermaster budget and hire a bunch of civilians, get 50 plainsmen, frontiersmen, guys who were good with a rifle and, and a pistol and were used to working on the plains and traveling on the plains and fighting the Indians, basically. So I'll hire them and I'll put them under the command of two regular army soldiers, one guy named Sandy Forsyth, who was a major, also a hero of the war. And the second in command was a guy named Fred Beecher, who was a lieutenant, also a hero of the war. He was wounded at Fredericksburg, which is a terrible Union disaster. And he got well enough to limp up to Gettysburg a couple months later and get wounded again there. He uh, stayed in the army and uh, was sent out to the West, to Kansas, along with Sandy Forsyth, the major, and they were given the job of recruiting 50 scouts. The scouts were paid a dollar a day and they also got 35 cents each if they supplied a horse. They had to supply their own horses, but the 35 cents were for grain for the horses. And uh, so they about hired- Forsyth, if you can, Terry, what sort of leader was he? What was his background? He was a major in the regular army, a very good soldier. And that time he was on Sheridan's staff and he was one of Sheridan's favorites. He was in the Shenandoah campaign with Sheridan, and he was known to be uh, a fearless leader in combat. He hadn't been wounded that I know of, but he was looking for a fight. He was pugnacious, well-liked, a good officer, thoughtful, and very experienced. He was no fool. It's interesting you say looking for a fight, though, Terry. Does that mean he was quite an aggressive officer, one who perhaps uh, wouldn't go shy under fire. Yes, indeed. He was aggressive, and uh, he was known to be aggressive. He was also a professional. Now, you have to understand, in an army that's been pared down, the opportunities for promotion were few and far between. The only way these guys could distinguish themselves in this very strange kind of warfare was with a fight with results. And results were very hard to come by because it's probably hard to imagine, but the Great Plains, Kansas and Wyoming and Nebraska, Colorado, are immense. 
And the native tribes out there were by definite, I mean, their culture was nomadic. They were very good at wandering. They were very good at getting lost. And they fought when they fought. They fought in their own terms and their own place. They were very good at ambush. And they were very good at uh, recognizing when the situation was uh, not to their advantage. They were very good at getting away. They just disappeared. Highly trained in terms of their cavalry as well. Some of the best in the world, I believe. The Cheyenne certainly were. The Custer and a number of his senior officers who encountered him would all say that. They were the finest light cavalry in the world, with all due respect to the uh, Polish and the Hungarian hussars and the light cavalry, the light brigade and all those guys. Yes, they were. And the the Cheyenne, was that their territory across the vast Great Plains? Was that their main area of nomadic movement? Yes, that is the key to the problem because they were nomads. All the famous tribes, the Sioux, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, the Kiowa, the Comanche, with the possible exception of the Apaches, who were a mountain-dwelling tribe in the south around the Mexican border. But all those horse tribes were nomadic, and they traveled around. They had carved out over the years, decades, their own general territory. But these were very informal. They got their territory by fighting each other. They believed in the right of conquest. Absolutely. And when they won, they kept the territory. And when they lost, they left. So they did wander. Now, the other important and probably obvious point is that the reason they were wandering is that they had horses and they were chasing buffalo. And buffalo were their mean primary means of economic support and life. And the buffalo had an annoying habit of wandering in their own way. So You had these tribes who were wandering after their primary game animal, and they had to go where they were. But they had also established these vast swaths of territory, which they believed were theirs, and which they defended when they could, and they defended them aggressively. And there was a lot of inter-tribal warfare. The Pawnees, for example, and the Cheyenne were two tribes equally warlike who hated each other and uh, frankly, don't like each other these today. So it is not a simple binary construction of the army versus the tribes. The tribes had their own warfare and they fought. Sometimes they'd make peace, sometimes they'd make war against each other. But the point you make is the right one. They wandered. They were hard to find. They liked to wander. It was their life. They loved the life of a nomad. They were hunters and they were warriors, and they were great cavalrymen because they started from before they could walk. And And so part of this, if we were to frame this in the broader economic and political context of the period, is after that moment of the Civil War, when the US is trying to define itself as the United States, like you say in the South, taking on the Ku Klux Klan, 
It's also about trying to rebuild economically and to reinforce its sovereign control over those states, whilst you've got a mass army of men who have been demobbed, who are out there trying to find their own territories and make their own money. So this is a massive clash in the history of the United States at this moment in time, in the 19th century, because it's finally coming, turning inwards to try and, well, ensure dominance over its territory. So as we get to this moment of battle, the battle that we're talking about today, does it really come together as epitomizing this period for you? Yes, indeed. That's the point. That's one of the reasons to do this book. The battle is an allegory because the people involved in it are the most exemplary of the Plains tribes, the Cheyenne. You have the regular army whittled down to just a few guys. You have the frontiersmen who are actually represent the settlers coming west. And among those, you have a few immigrants because the other dynamic involved in this is immigration from Europe into the United States. And most of those people came here with the idea of getting land. Well, the land was in the west, wasn't in uh, counties around New York. So those people were also moving west. So the battle, although it was a small one, represents what was going on in the West. It's, as I say, it's an allegory. Hi, I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So that's really interesting. So take us into this battle, Terry, the Battle of Beecher Island. Okay, well, uh, once uh, Sandy Forsyth and Fred Beecher recruited their men, they got 50 guys. They gave them the rifles and pistols and ammunition. They got four pack mules to carry some medical supplies and some extra ammunition. And they left from uh, Fort Wallace, Kansas, which was the westernmost fort in Kansas. It's right on the Colorado border. And they started to look for some Cheyenne raiders who had been terrorizing the stage lines. They knew that there was a group of raiders operating in the area of Colorado on the border. And so they went looking for them. Here again, the problem in fighting the natives most of the time was that they'd send out patrols, the army would send out patrols, and they'd come back in a week or so, and then having found nothing and having their horses worn out. So anyway, they knew there were people out there. So they headed northwest toward the corner of the Colorado border. And they found a trail. Now, they had taken with them, as I said, four pack mules and supplies for only seven days. Now, the reason that's important is that in the past, because the cavalry depended on their horses, obviously, the horses depended on regular supplies of grain. Army horses could not subsist on grass alone, unlike the Indian ponies, who have been raised on the plains for decades, centuries. They were wild Mustangs. They lived on the plain. Army horses could not survive long, much more than a week or so, nine days, on grass alone. So the guys took their own grain with them, but they didn't take a wagon. They just took these mules because they didn't want to be burdened. That sounds like a major strategic disadvantage to me, Terry. If your horses can't live off the land compared to those of the Cheyenne and the Sioux, then you have a long logistical trail, or like you say, you have very limited supplies. Well, that's exactly the problem. So that the cavalry was burdened because they had to carry wagons with them. And when they tried to get into mountainous territory, they couldn't follow the trails. I mean, this was a tactical problem that bedeviled the army until they started using pack mules exclusively, but they never did that completely. So you have a guy who basically has seven days worth of fuel. They're after the elusive raiders and they found a trail. The trail started to widen. Now, usually when Cheyenne were on a raid, they would most often just have uh, relatively small groups. They had no military structure at all. They were highly individualistic, and they did what they wanted to do with whom they wanted to do it. Very often, there were small groups, and when they went back to the village, they would disband. I mean, there was no real organization. That meant that when you found a trail, very often the trail would be solid for a number of miles, and then it would widen out as the individuals scattered because they knew that the army couldn't find the individual. So they, scattering was a, a technique. In this case, the trail that Forsyth and Beecher were following and his guys were following started to get bigger <laughs> than, than usual. 
it got bigger and bigger. And they realized they were following not just a bunch of raiders, but an entire village. Because you can tell when a village is following because the travoid trails that the poles make, that they drag their tents and their equipment, made huge ruts in the ground, plus their horse herd. So they, as the trail got bigger, some of the old timers in the uh, band of scouts came up to Forsyth and said, uh, you know, we, we're going to have a problem. If we find these guys, we could have a real problem. So Forsyth, and th this got to be toward the end of his seven days. So he had a problem. He was on a hot trail. He didn't want to turn around because if he turned around, it was a failure. Uh, he was aggressive. And he also was working with a standard understanding that the army had, for good reason, that when a village was attacked, it would scatter because the first inclination was for the women and children to run away and for the warriors to fight a holding action and then scatter themselves. So the standard idea was that if you found a village, and Custer also had this idea later on, when you found a village, chances are that you better attack them when you had the surprise on your side because they could scatter if they knew you were there and when you first came. So this is Forsyth's so, chance to make a name for himself. Not only that, it is his chance to do what he thought was his duty and to follow his orders because Sheridan told him if he find him, attack him. This was no grandstand stunt. This was a legitimate military decision. It was a difficult decision. He was at the end of his supply line, but he was on a hot trail. He was on a group of guys who had committed depredations, murders, and uh, his job and his orders were, go get them. So it's not one of these wild characterizations that people make about Custer, for example. It was a very tough decision. And in his place, most officers of his time, if they were any good, would have done pretty much the same thing. He listened to his guys. He took their counsel. He made a decision. He was in command and he decided and he went forward. And the guys said, OK, we'll go. But hang on, Terry. There's one thing about the Native Americans that I think I know, and that's that they know the land far better than those who are following them across that region. Many of them, of course, are new to that area and they've got pretty good situational awareness and their own scouts. So didn't they know they were being followed? Well, they were not really very good at putting out sentries. It seems funny, but they did have guys who wandered around all the time and their own scouts. And in fact, Forsyth uh, was spotted by a couple of buffalo hunters who were out there uh, on their own account. And they found him and they in turn, in fact, went back to the Cheyenne village and said, hey, you know, these guys are there. So yes, and the chances are the scouts and maybe Forsyth and Beecher Maybe they had an idea that they'd been spotted, but they didn't ever see anybody. All they saw was this massive trail. They went into camp that night along the uh, Rickery Fork of the Republican River because there was good grass there. The grass on the plains, it, it was September, it was summer. A lot of it had been burnt out. So even though the horses could not subsist for long on grass, they needed as good a grass as they could find. And there was good grass in this valley along the, the river. And in the river, which is fairly dry at that stage, like a lot of Western rivers at the end of summer, it was just a few rivulets. But in the middle of the river was this raised island, raised up about not far, a couple of feet. But it was covered with grass 
tall grass, willows, and uh, a tree or two. And as they went into camp, Forsyth took a walk around and he said, well, you know that if we get attacked, and he was sure they were around somewhere, if we get attacked, that's a better position than where we are right now. Because right then he was alongside the riverbank, not on the island. So they went into camp and the next morning it all started. We seem to be on the edge of some action here, Terry. They have set up their positions. They know where they might fall back if they need to. What happens next? Now, in the village, the buffalo hunters who came in alerted the village and said, you know, these guys are down there. This is a great opportunity. There are only 50 of them. We've got 400 guys in the camp. Not only that, there was a Sioux camp that was close by. So they went over and told their Sioux buddies because they often work together. And how many were in the Sioux camp? It's not really known, but it could have been anywhere from uh, one to 200 guys, because various estimates of the final battle say anywhere from 400 to 600 warriors, a combination of Sioux and, and Cheyenne, mostly Cheyenne. So there were a lot of them anyway. <laughs> That's not a good ratio to me. That's 600 against 50. Doesn't sound yeah. like things are going to go to plan here. No, it's not so good. Now, the other thing that's interesting about, and it's culturally significant, is that the Cheyenne got together and they said, well, we've got these guys trapped. This is a slam dunk. Nobody go and uh, do anything to warn these guys because we'll surround the place. Because each island was surrounded by low hills in every direction, meaning surrounded, obviously. So the elders and the leaders in the camp said, you know, nobody go. Well, the Cheyenne, as I said, and the Sioux were highly individualistic. They did what they wanted to do. And they also had an inordinate thirst for glory and fame among their people. So um, a half dozen, I think eight of these guys, they were just teenagers, said, let's, hey, we can sneak away. We'll go to the camp and we can steal some horses because stealing horses was their great joy. It was also their primary source of wealth. It was the Indian currency, really, a horse. So stealing horses was a great game and it was a great honor. So these kids snuck out of camp and found the scouts. And at first light, in fact, a little bit, well, it's still gray. They went charging down one of these hills, waving blankets and yelling like uh, demons and uh, tried to scatter the horses. But Forsyth knew enough about Indian fighting to make sure that the horses were well picketed. But the camp was still asleep. They had sentries out. So the sentries saw these guys coming and they started firing at them. They didn't hit any of them, but the boys were able to run off two of the pack mules and I think another couple of horses, but that was it. And they ran them off and ran back. It was great, great coup for them. But that alerted Forsyth in the camp and he said, this is it. This is the start of something bad. So then he retreated to the island that he had spotted the night before. And he told the guys, dig in. They all had their trenching tools with them. So they dug rifle pits in a circle along the uh, both sides of this island. And they had a field of fire on both sides of the island of about 70 yards. And they also had a field of fire up and down the riverbank. So they had it was a good place to fight a defensive action. So those young Xi'an guys going in and raiding them first thing, trying to make a name for themselves, really gave them the heads up and stopped them from, uh, well, what would have been a massacre, really. Right, Terry? Exactly right. In fact, one of the Cheyenne warriors who was named George Bent wrote his memoirs 
He was the son of an Anglo trader and a Cheyenne woman, and he lived his life in both areas. But he, he fought with the Cheyenne. He said those mischievous young men spoiled everything. But it was typical. They weren't punished, I don't believe, because that's just what kids do. That's what guys do. That's what warriors do. They go their own way. And so in the morning, not long after Forsyth was able to retreat to the island, the hills were surrounded by, I mean, it's a classic movie scene. The hills were suddenly populated by the Cheyenne everywhere. It does sound like a classic Western. We can all see it in our mind right now, like yeah. a John Wayne film, all around the top of the hills, just silhouettes of warriors ready to charge down. Exactly right. Interestingly enough, though, they left a gap, a slight gap to the, uh, I think, to the east. And that was a typical Cheyenne ambush trick because they thought, well, maybe if we leave a little gap in the lines, these guys will try to run for it once they're exposed. When they're in the open, it's going to be even easier. But the Forsyth recognized the trap, but, or at least he didn't fall for it one way or the other. So anyway, that was the start of something big. And they did charge. The, the Cheyenne did charge. But as I said, they had no hierarchy among their warriors or in their society. And so the first charge was only by a few, oh, I, I would say a couple dozen. And uh, it was led by, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but anyway, he, he just said, come on, guys. And his buddies followed him. The rest of them stayed where they were. And they were surprised because the, uh, the scouts were all given uh, Spencer repeating rifles. And they were, I think, seven-shot rifles. So 50 guys with seven-shot rifles can put up a good volume of fire. And the Cheyenne were used to fighting troops that used um, muzzle loaders, single shots. And they had a tactic which, well, they knew, everybody knew that when the army fired off their weapons, there was a period before they could reload 20, 30 seconds. And so that was the time you really went after it. But a seven shot repeater keeps going. So the first charge of the uh, Cheyenne, I think there were. I don't know, three or four of them killed. But that was the beginning of the battle. And at that time, a number of the scouts were killed. I think five of them initially were killed. Among them, Fred Beecher, who gave his name to the island, obviously. Uh, Forsyth was wounded twice in both legs. He was also wounded in a bullet, graze his scalp, knock his hat off and fracture his skull. So he was knocked into his trench and was basically, he was conscious the rest of the fight, but he was pretty much out of action. And what sort of fighting are we talking about here, Terry? Describe it to us. Is this yeah. Cheyenne warriors charging in and knocking people down from their horses? Or is this also people from the sidelines up in the hills shooting in with their own guns? Because the Cheyenne were also armed with rifles as well. Yes, that's right. Well, you have to remember, I don't know whether you, I mentioned it earlier, so you may not remember the Cheyenne ethic of the warrior, each individual warrior was motivated by the acclaim of his peers in the village. And his idea, his greatest thrill was a charge in which he displayed his courage. So sometimes during a charge, it would be a guy who would come in with carrying no weapon at all. In this particular first charge, the guy was carrying, I think, just a spear. And he rode right through the island, unscathed, 
Some of the others were riding into the island with their rifles and bows and arrows. I mean, they could fire off arrows faster than troops could reload single-shot muskets, that's for sure. So they were firing. But all the wounded in the whole Beecher fight were wounded by bullets. So they were, the Cheyenne were using rifles primarily. So this sounds like a, a pretty dire situation for Forsyth and his bunch of scouts. They've lost quite a few of them, including their second in command. Were they, well, is this the end for them? Or were they able to get some sort of scouts off to get reinforcements in? What happens next? Yes, well, once the, uh, the Cheyenne saw that the first charge didn't work, they had another charge, and that was also beaten off. And so they said, well, this isn't working so well. These guys are dug in and their horses were picketed. The scouts' horses were picketed around the island and the Cheyenne killed all of them. So the scouts were stranded now. They were, uh, yes. And the Cheyenne said, well, there's no sense doing these charges. We'll just get off and we'll fight on foot. And they fought. So it became a skirmish and sniping operation both sides fighting from tall grass on both sides of the river all around. So Forsyth realized, well, we're stranded now. We're 100 miles from the closest fort, which is Fort Wallace. There's nothing between here and there, just the empty plains. We've got hundreds of Indians around us. We're screwed, basically. But our only choice is to send for help. So he called for two volunteers to go. And one of them was a 19-year-old kid named Frank Stilwell. And the other one was some uh, old-timer comic figure who shows up in all the old westerns, this kind of figure. His name was Trudeau. He was a French-Canadian. And he volunteered to go with Stillwell. So they snuck out that night. And uh, there was no firing. And uh, they went out backwards so that their tracks wouldn't appear to be what they were. And uh, so they took off and they had, this was on the first night, they had 100, as I said, 100 miles to go on foot over the plains with Cheyenne Sioux and all kinds of enemies all around. The next couple of days, the horses were all dead and the, the men had all run out of supplies themselves. Their doctor had been killed. They had a civilian doctor with them. Their medical supplies were lost when the, when the two mules were run off by the Indian boys. And uh, they were just dug in. They had water because the river was there. It wasn't very big, but they could also dig and get water from that. They started eating the dead horse flesh, but the sun out there in late September uh, is brutal on the plains. There's no shade. The horses began to rot very quickly. So too, the five guys who were killed, they had to be buried at night when the shine weren't paying attention. And the smell, so, Terry, the smell in that valley of these men trapped on that tiny island. Well, don't forget there were 50 horses all dead and five guys and a few Cheyenne in the bushes who were also dead. The smell was overpowering. Also, there were only five, well, not only, there were five scouts killed, but there were also another dozen or so wounded. One of them at least developed gangrene, and as you probably know, that doesn't add to the aroma of the camp. So on the third day, they're holding out. They're out of food. They're eating rotten horse flesh. They've got water. The Cheyenne are still around. They're still sniping. So Force said, look, guys, we don't know whether the first two guys got through. we got to send some more. we got to summit. Somebody else has to go. So two more guys volunteered, and they snuck out at night. And that, again, still 100 miles to go. 
I mean, I'd say I'd have volunteered, Terry, to get out of that situation, but you're heading off on a hundred mile trek across vast plains in the middle of summer without any of your own supplies, really, maybe some minimal water. It's bleak either way, isn't it? It is bleak. And the other thing about the plains is, although it's sometimes it's the plains are flat as a pool table or snooker table, and uh, other times it's rolling hills, but there are no landmarks. There's nothing you can see. So you can't even be sure you're going in the right direction. Now, I'm not sure how much of these guys had sort of a, an instinctive nautical navigation by the stars, I mean, celestial navigation, but somehow they did. They did make it through. Both pairs made it through. That's incredible. They, yeah, they got through and arrived in a, within a couple of hours of each other. But it took them four days to get there. Now, you cover 100 miles in four days over the plains, you're moving. And they had to hide from the Indians during the day. So that was quite a trek. And they had no food, as you said. They were in bad shape when they got there. But they did make it. So, Terry, take us through to the end. Is it a tragedy? For Forsyth and his men, are they massacred before the reinforcements can get there or are they saved? They're saved. Otherwise, we wouldn't know too much about this thing. It's a good point. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's interesting as part of that story that I mentioned was an allegory. The guys who were out on patrol at the fort just around Fort Wallace were uh, two companies of what was called the Buffalo Soldiers. Now, the Buffalo soldiers were black cavalrymen who were ex-slaves who were recruited during the manpower shortages just after the war. So these guys were both, uh, I mean, there was the 9th and 10th Regiment of black soldiers. They were officered by white men, but they were entirely black. And there were two companies of these guys out scouting, looking for other raiders. And uh, lo and behold, if they didn't come to the rescue of Forsyth, and his men on the ninth day. Meanwhile, the Cheyenne, after about the fourth or fifth day of the siege, in their often inexplicable way, decided, well, we've had enough of this. We're going to leave. So they departed. But scouts were not able to do any hunting, so they were starving to death. One of them was dying of gangrene and did die. The only thing they were able to shoot that whole time was an old skinny coyote who wanted to do close. But that was it for food. But they were rescued. Subsequently, very shortly thereafter, the patrol from Fort Wallace arrived with a couple of ambulances. And uh, they quickly moved the guys away from the Beecher Island, which, as you mentioned, had become contaminated, moved them about a quarter of a mile away and started tending to the sick. Because I think there were, I don't know, a dozen or 18 wounded who did survive. One of them didn't, but uh, they did survive. So they went back and... Uh, they went back to the fort. It took uh, Sandy Forsyth two years to recover from his wounds. And uh, we went back into the 7th Cavalry after that. Well, in, in the Cavalry after that. I, I don't remember if it was the 7th or not. But he was one of Custer's best buddy, buddies. And he went back in the Army. You create quite a, uh, an image in our heads there as the Cheyenne retreat into the shadows. And they're gone by the time the reinforcements arrive. It almost yeah. ends with... A little bit of a, well, a blissful anticlimax, I suppose, here, as we definitely don't want them to be 
massacred. But this is a fascinating history, Terry, because that one small battle with that ending actually, like you say, really epitomises every actor that's going on in this time of conflict and those broader social, economic and political transformations that are happening in the United States after the Civil War. So tell us, where can people read more about this, Terry? Well, the book is called Diane Summer. And the subtitle is The Battle of Beecher Island uh, History. So I'd be happy if people went to that particular epic and then checked it out. I don't think there's been much done on it other than that. But I'd just like to reiterate your point, which is that it is an allegory. I mean, you had immigrants and uh, regular soldiers. You had black men, red men, white men, all fighting on a 100-yard island almost acting as a stage for these allegorical characters to work out this bit of history. And it's kind of like a miniature painting of the settlement of the West, I think. If it's not an allegory, it's also a Michigan miniature. Well, Terry, thank you so much for taking us through this history. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. I'd like to come back. Thanks very much. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're looking for more fascinating warfare content, then go and subscribe to our Warfare Wednesdays newsletter. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.